The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. What about Charles? We're going to release him inside the camp in about five minutes. You promised to turn him over to me. I didn't think you'd want him. No. No, you're right. What makes you so wise, Hogan? Association with you. It's been quite an operation. I don't know why. Chances of our seeing one another again are very small, but I want to explain myself. May I? Why not? Don't make it easy. No, I don't. To say I never went along with Charles just isn't true. I did, to some degree. Mainly, I went fox hunting. The war changed things, changed me. And then, those last three months in Berlin. I, I'm really grateful to Hitler, you know. I might have gone on for years, more dead than alive and not caring very much either way. What I saw in Berlin picked me up and shook me. And when you see things like that, you, you make a commitment, one way or the other. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, June 28, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yeah, when you see things like that, you make a commitment one way or the other, don't you? Eventually, that's where all political decisions are made, one way or the other. And in political terms, that translates into left and right. As to Hitler's Nazi party, it has always been falsely assumed that the Nazis were on the right, you know, extreme right wing. And this is a myth that has continued to befuddle and obscure and confuse political debates to this very day. And on today's show, that very thing was what we're going to be demonstrating for you firsthand, as I will respectfully choose to disagree with all of the participants who continue to attempt to make always futile arguments based on this false alignment of left and right, and a false belief that there's some kind of magical center or middle of the road between the two totalitarian ideologies of the left. Because when it comes to politics, the greatest myth in the world is the belief that there's a middle or a center to what is always in reality a binary option. But before we begin with that, don't forget you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. I just had to do this show, especially after having heard the Monk debate that was discussed on the Danielle Metz show a couple weeks ago, and then over the past week or so, our own releases of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship YouTube videos featuring Lindsay Shepard and David Haskell. These things only added to my incentive to do the show, and if you missed any of them, check them out on our website, www.justrightmedia.org. 
Now, on today's show, we'll be hearing excerpts from these debates and discussions, excerpts that I have selected and edited to focus on one main theme only, the unavoidable and never resolvable debate between left and right when it's based on a scale that simply does not work in reality, either in theory or in practice. So, you see, for me, this was an opportunity I couldn't miss. An opportunity for what? for clearly demonstrating why left and right are polar opposites and why there's no such thing as a political center, a case that I finally got around to summarizing myself one year ago and which I'll review as briefly as I can so as to set up the framework for the balance of the show. If you want to hear the whole issue of compassing the political spectrum left and right, that was broadcast exactly a year ago, June 22, 2017 on Just Right 510. Check it out. But here's a brief summary. In the traditional scales and diagrams that you know, the left and right have always been typified with communism on the left and fascism on the right. This is wrong. Simply wrong. Communism, fascism, socialism, they are all on the left, whereas on the right we have freedom and capitalism. Because if you don't do that, then freedom and capitalism do not exist on this scale. And that is the whole problem. Here's all these people trying to find a freedom point, and there isn't one on the scale that they're using. They do, however, use the old scale that describes not ideas, which is what left and right are about. They're not about people. They're about ideas. The people are described from left to right on the old scale, which is all on the left, from the left of the left, radical, liberal, centrist, conservative, and reactionary, finally, to the right side of the left. Now, both in theory and practice, these ideological representations with fascism on the right, are completely wrong. They do not reflect political reality, and demonstrably so. Yet they continue to be taught in our schools and used as a standard method of contrasting the political spectrum. And as we will continue to hear today, firsthand, from those who are still clinging to this completely false political model, what a mess they get themselves into when they try. And this has caused untold confusion in the minds of millions, and perhaps has played a greater role than most would expect in the accelerating and tragic drift of nations to the left, towards communism and fascism. Now, since by definition left and right are intended to be polar opposites, a more accurate, useful representation of the political polarities would be simply that on the left you have tyranny, on the right you have freedom, Just a quick review. On the left, group identity. On the right, individual identity. On the left, socialism, communism, fascism. On the right, capitalism. On the left, censorship. On the right, freedom of speech. On the left, restricted trade. On the right, freedom of trade. You get the point. And then, of course, you have the anti-concepts, group rights on the left, whereas individual rights exist on the right. And then you have another anti-concept, collective responsibility on the left, and the real concept of individual responsibility on the right. And then, of course, another aspect of the left is unreality and irrationality, as opposed to reason and reality. And on the left, we have force and forced association versus the consent and voluntarism of the right. Now, there is no middle of the road between these binary options. You can't be in favor of both reason and irrationality, of force and consent, of both group identity and of individual identity, of both tyranny and freedom, and yet that's what everybody wants to do when they sit on that stupid center. What is being popularly described as the right today is really an oxymoronic concept. It is really the right wing of the left. 
Because the right represents freedom, which is a natural condition in comparison to the unlimited number of freedom-restricting ideologies, the political right is almost not political at all. In fact, I would maybe describe it more generically, not in the muddled leftist terms of political confusion and misdirection. And we've described that in the past by just using the simple dictionary definition that the right means done in accordance with or conformable to moral law or to some standard of rightness, conformable to truth or fact, conformable to standard of propriety or to the conditions of the case, proper, fit, suitable, holding one direction as a line, straight, direct, properly placed, disposed or adjusted, well-regulated, orderly, sound in mind or body, healthy, well. These are great definitions of the word right. And of course, there's no corresponding generic definition of left in the standard dictionaries. So with these definitions and a proper visual representation of left and right as our guide and compass, maybe what you're going to hear on the show today will make a little more sense. Now, I wasn't even aware of the particular monk debate that was discussed by Robert Vaughn and Danielle on the Danielle Matt show a couple of weeks ago until I heard them talking about it. And they were both quite correct when they concluded that based on the resolution of the debate that let it be resolved what you call political correctness, I call progress, the debate de- degenerated into a non-debate, you know, with the usual racist and sexist accusations, very few of which you will hear today. But that debate featured Jordan Peterson and Stephen Fry on the con side and Michael Dyson and Michelle Goldberg on the pro side, barely even touched on the nature of political correctness. But there was another non-debate going on in that monk forum. It was the debate that none were aware they were even having and that all constantly kept trying to avoid having. It's the classic debate between left and right and the wrong way of looking at them. I plan to share some significant portions of their discussions, particularly those that involve references to the political left and right. I couldn't possibly have written a script to better illustrate the reality and necessity of understanding the polarity of left and right. So, like a test tube lab experiment, the monk debate on left and right was a fascination for me, even as nothing whatever was being accomplished in resolving their chosen resolution for the debate. But to me, the most frustrating thing about everything you're going to be hearing today is the persistent and continual attempt by all speakers to avoid being labeled, quote, too far to the left or to the right. And in so doing, they end up resolving nothing and ignoring the glaring reality that the extreme right that's being referred to in their discussion is, in fact, just another manifestation of the left. So what's amazing to me is how much anything that can be described as right is so avoided by everyone, even by those who are right. And we'll hear the reasons for that from the horse's mouth today. So here are those portions of the monk debate that had to do with left and right. And if you aren't confused after you hear this, then we'll try and set things straight. The fundamental low-resolution grand narrative that we've oriented ourselves around in the West is one of the sovereignty of the individual. And it's predicated on the idea that all things considered the best way for me to interact with someone else is individual to individual and to react to that person as if they're both part of the process because that's the right way of thinking about it, the psychological process by which things we don't understand can yet be explored and by things that aren't properly organized in our society can be yet set right. The reason we're valuable as individuals, both with regards to our rights and responsibilities is because that's our essential purpose and that's our nobility and that's our function. 
What's happening, as far as I'm concerned, in the universities in particular, and spreading very rapidly out into the broader world, including the corporate world, much to what should be its chagrin, is a collectivist narrative. And of course, there's some act utility in a collectivist narrative, because we're all part of groups in different ways, but the collectivist narrative that I regard as politically correct is a, a strange pastiche of postmodernism and neo-Marxism, and its fundamental claim is that, no, you're not essentially an individual, you're essentially a member of a group, and that group might be your ethnicity, and it might be your sex, and it might be your race, and it might be any of the endless numbers of other potential groups that you belong to, because you belong to many of them, and that you should be essentially categorized along with those who are like you on that dimension in that group. That's proposition number one. Proposition number two is that the proper way to view the world is as a battleground between groups of different power. So you define the groups first, and then you assume that you view the individual from the group context, you view the battle between groups from the group context, and you view history itself as a consequence of nothing but the power maneuvers between different groups. That eliminates any consideration of the individual in, at a very fundamental level. And also, any idea, for example, of free speech, because if you're collectivist at heart in this manner, there is no such thing as free speech because for an individualist, free speech is how you make sense of the world and reorganize society in a proper manner. But for the radical left type collectivist that's associated with this viewpoint of political correctness, when you speak, all you're doing is playing a power game on behalf of your group. And there's nothing else that you can do because that's all there is. Hierarchies tend to produce situations where people stack up at the bottom, and that the dispossessed in hierarchies need a political voice, which is the proper voice of the left, by the way, and the necessary voice of the left. But that is not the same as proclaiming that the right level of analysis for our grand unifying narrative is that all of us are fundamentally to be identified by the groups that we belong to, and to construe the entire world as the battleground between different forms of tyranny in consequence of that group affiliation. And to the degree that we play out that narrative, that won't be progress, believe me. And we certainly haven't seen that progress in the universities. We've seen situations like what happened at Wilfrid Laurier University instead. We won't see progress. What we'll return to is exactly the same kind of tribalism that characterized the left. How did we get to the point where the hijacking of the discourse on political correctness has become a kind of mannequin distinction between us and them? So what's interesting then is that political correctness has transmogrified into a caricature of the left. The left came up with the term political correctness, shall I remind you. Now it is transmogrified into an attempt to characterize the radical left. The radical left is a metaphor, it's a symbol, it's an articulation. They don't exist, their numbers are too small. And so identity politics has been generated as a bete noir of the right, and yet the right doesn't understand the degree to which identity has been foisted upon black people and brown people and people of color from the very beginning on women and trans people. You think that I want to be part of a group that is constantly abhorred by people at Starbucks? Individualism is the characteristic moment in modernity. Mr. Peterson is right. At the same time, some people ain't as equal as others. So we have to understand the conditions under which they have emerged and in which they have been benighted and attacked by their own culture. And I ain't seen nobody be a bigger snowflake than white men who complain. What's interesting to me, you're talking about not having a collective identity. What do you call a nation? Are you Canadian? Are you Canadian by yourself? 
Are you an individual or are you part of a group? When America formed its union, it did so in opposition to another group. The reason that Trump and Brexit in Britain and all kinds of nativists all over Europe are succeeding is not the triumph of the right, it's the catastrophic failure of the left. It's our fault. We absolutely... My point is not that I've turned to the right or anything like that, or that I'm nice and fluffy and want everybody to be decent. Mm. I'm saying, fuck political correctness. Resist! Fight! If you have a point of view, fight it in the proper manner, using democracy as it should be, not channels of education, not language. You know, it's so silly. At the moment, you're being recruiting sergeants for the right but by annoying and upsetting, and instead of fighting, either fighting or persuading. But political correctness is a middle course that simply doesn't work. I guess I would like to set out a challenge in, in somewhat the same format as Mr. Fry did to people on the moderate left. I've studied totalitarianism for a very long time, both on the left and on the right in various forms, and I think we've done a pretty decent job of determining when right-wing beliefs become dangerous. I think that they become dangerous when they, in the people who stand on the right evoke notions of, of racial superiority or ethnic superiority, something like that. It's fairly easy to draw a box around them and place them to one side. What I fail to see happening on the left, and this is with regards to the sensible left, because such a thing exists, is for the same thing to happen with regards to the radical leftists. Okay, so here's an open question. If it's not diversity, inclusivity, and equity as a triumvirate, that mark out the two excessive left, and with equity defined, by the way, not as equality of opportunity, which is an absolutely laudable goal, but as equality of outcome, which is how it's defined, then exactly how do we demarcate the two extreme left? What do we do? We say, well, there's no such thing as the two extreme left. Well, that's certainly something that characterized much of intellectual thinking for the 20th century, as our high-order intellectuals, especially in place like, places like France, did everything they could to bend over backwards to ignore absolutely everything that was happening in the catastrophic left world in the Soviet Union and in Maoist China, not least. We've done a terrible job of determining how to demarcate what's useful from the left from what's pathological. And so it's perfectly okay for someone to criticize my attempts to identify something like a boundary. We could say diversity, inclusivity, and equity, especially equity, which is in fact equality of outcome, which is an absolutely abhorrent notion. If you know anything about history, you know that. And I'm perfectly willing to hear some reasonable alternatives, but what I hear continually from people on the left, first of all, as my opponents did, to construe every argument that is possibly able to be construed on the axis of group identification, and to fail to help the rest of us differentiate the reasonable left, which stands for the oppressed, from the pathological left that's capable of unbelievable destruction. And what I see happening in the university campuses in particular, where the leftists absolutely predominate, and that's certainly not my imagination, that's, that's well documented by perfectly reasonable people like Jonathan Haidt, is an absolute failure to make precisely that distinction. And I see the same thing echoed tonight. In, in agreeing to... Uh participate in this debate and stand on this side of the argument. I'm fully aware that many people 
who choose incorrectly, in my view, to, to see this issue in terms of left and right, devalued and exploded terms, as I think they are, will believe that I am betraying myself and such causes and values that I have espoused over the years. I've been given huge grief already simply because I'm standing here next to Professor Peterson, which is the very reason that I am standing here in the first place. I'm standing next to someone with whom I have, you know, differences, shall we say, in terms of <laughs> politics and all kinds of other things, um, precisely because I think all this has got to stop. This rage, resentment, hostility, intolerance, above all this um, with us or against us certainty. I think it's time for this toxic, binary, zero-sum madness to stop before we destroy ourselves. Um, I'd better nail my colours to the mast uh, before I get any further in this. It's only polite to give you a sense of where I come from. I, all my adult life I have been uh, what you might call a lefty, a soft lefty, a liberal of the most hand-wringing, milksop, milk-toast variety. Not a burning man-the-barricade socialist, not even really a progressive worth the name. Naturally, I want racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, bullying, bigotry, intolerance of all all human kinds to end. That's surely a given amongst all of us. The question is how such a golden aim is to be achieved. My ultimate objection to political correctness is not that it combines so much of what I have spent a lifetime loathing and opposing, preachiness with great respect. Um, <laughs> my real objection is that I don't think political correctness works. I want to achieve, I want to get to the golden hill, but I don't think that's the way to get there. I believe one of the greatest human failings is to prefer to be right than to be effective. Um, and, and political correctness is always obsessed with how right it is without thinking of how effective it, it might be. And I would like this quotation from my hero Bertrand Russell to hover over the evening. One of the painful things about our time is that those who feel certainty are stupid and those with any imagination and understanding are filled with doubt and indecision. Let doubt prevail. Let doubt prevail, proclaims Stephen Fry. Oh my goodness. Why would anyone who believes in this non-belief even participate in a debate where you're trying to argue a point on which you're supposed to be somewhat certain? I mean, certainty does not mean infallibility or omnipotence. It means you have a point of view that you hold, and you can express it. And if you're not certain about it, you, aren't, you don't belong in a debate. And it's funny how certain Fry was about this notion of uncertainty. You, you know, you can't get away from the contradiction. For example, I'm certain that the sun will rise tomorrow. Should I spend my life in constant doubt about this? Because you know it's possible it might not. And if you think about it, in this context, notions of certainty really only apply to predictions of the future, where nothing is ever certain, not even the sun rising tomorrow. But I can always be certain about the facts that I know, about the experiences that I've had, at least until some sort of new evidence would suggest otherwise, and to say that I can't be certain because I'm not aware of all the evidence is to totally deny any sense of knowing anything. I believe one of the greatest human failings is to prefer to be right rather than effective, says Fry. 
Wow, that is a terrible thing to say. Effective at what? At being right or at being wrong? Which we call left in politics. Those are your only two choices because to say one is effective at being both right and wrong is so ridiculous it would expose the silliness of that statement. My ultimate objection to political correctness is that it doesn't work, says Fry. Well, that's pure pragmatism, isn't it? And all pragmatism, as we've illustrated on this show many times in the past, drifts toward the left. And you know, this is exactly the notion that was expressed in the historical record following the defeat of the Nazis in World War II. I quote from the Universal World Reference Encyclopedia, which was printed back in the 1950s. I quote, This demoralization of the German people after 12 years of Nazism was expressed in their condemnation of the doctrine because it had failed, rather than because it was mass murder incorporated, end quote. There you go, pure pragmatism. Says Fry, quote, People incorrectly view things in terms of left and right, which are devalued and explosive terms, he says. Well, his statement is correct only in the context of the false traditional BS political scale of left and right that people keep using, the one that shows fascism placed on the right. So how else could it be? It's meaningless if both sides of the scale mean the same thing. Of course those labels have been devalued when one no longer means something different from the other. For his part, Jordan Peterson, by the way, I, I support a lot of these people in there in what they're trying to do, but they're, they're, they're killing their own argument until they get this polarization of left and right correct. You know, for his part, Jordan Peterson says he has studied totalitarianism on both the left and right. Again, using the incorrect political spectrum, when in fact he has really studied totalitarianism on both the left and left. So to compensate for this deficiency in definition, he's referred to what he calls the identitarian right. <laughs> you know, quote, right-wing beliefs become dangerous when people on the right invoke notions of racial or ethnic superiority. Or in other words, as I would put it, when the right becomes left. <laughs> That's, I mean, all notions of racial or ethnic superiority are based on group identities, and all group identities emanate from the left. So, hello out there. Come on, get with it. And when Peterson argued that, quote, the dispossessed in hierarchies need a political voice, which is the proper voice of the left, the necessary voice of the left, end quote, well, what do I say to that? Because as a member of the dispossessed myself, and as someone who has himself been kicked off campus for my views on the right, and whose ideology of the right is not shared by any majority, and I fully realize this, then according to Peterson, my voice is a voice of the left, because I'm one of the dispossessed, you see. Talk about the right being left out of the debate. Let the confusion continue as we tune into more of the Monk debate. Again, those parts of the debate where left and right continually become part of the scenario, even though all of the participants say they would rather not deal with those labels. Jump in on this idea of, of what you see as the pernicious danger of groupthink when it comes to ethnicity, uh, when it comes to gender. Why do you think well, that that's one of the primal sins in your view of, of quote, political correctness? 
Well, I think it's one of the primal sins of identity politics players on the left and the right, just to be clear about that. Personally, since this has got personal at times, I'm no fan of the identitarian right. I think that anybody who plays a game, a, a conceptual game where group identity comes first and foremost, risks an exacerbation of tribalism. It doesn't matter whether it's on the left or the right. Um, with regards to the idea of group rights, well, there's a fundamental, and this is something we've fallen into terribly in Canada, not least because we had to contend with the threat of Quebec separatism, but the, the idea of group rights is extraordinarily problematic because the, 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 the obverse of the coin of individual rights is individual responsibilities, and you can hold an individual responsible, and an individual can be responsible, and so that's partly why individuals have rights. But groups, how do you hold a group responsible? I mean, the whole idea is not, it's not a good idea to hold a group responsible. First of all, it flies in the face of the idea of the sort of justice systems that we've laid out in the West that are essentially predicated first on the assumption of individual innocence, but also on the possibility of individual guilt, not group guilt. We saw what happened in the 20th century many, many times when the idea of group guilt was, it, was, it, it was enabled to get a foothold, let's say, in the polity and in the justice system. It was absolutely catastrophic. And so, okay, fine, group rights. Well, what are you gonna, how are you going to contend with the alternative to that, the opposite of that? Or that where's the group responsibility? And how are you going to keep... How are you going to hold your groups responsible? Group rights are an absolute catastrophe, in my opinion. If we can agree, and we haven't, that the left can go too far, which it clearly can, mm -hmm. then how would my worthy opponents precisely define when the left that they stand for has gone too far? You didn't like equity, equality of outcome, I think that's a great marker. But if you have a better suggestion and, and won't sidestep the question, so let's figure out how I can dispense with my white privilege and so that you can tell me when the left has gone too far, since they clearly can. And that's what this debate is about, about political correctness. It's about the left going too far. And I think it's gone too far in many ways. And I'd like to figure out exactly how and when so the reasonable left could make its ascendance again and we could quit all this nonsense. To the, to the question of when the left goes too far, I mean, to me, it's pretty easy. V violence and censorship, right? I'm ag against violence and I'm against censorship. The, but I also, looking around the world right now, I understand, again, that there is like a problem of kind of left-wing annoyance, right? There's a lot of things that kind of people random people um, on the internet in particular are able to swarm individuals and turn kind of stray remarks into social media campaigns and this is often you know conflated with political correctness and it's a bad phenomenon i wish there was a way to put an end to it i don't think there there is no way to put an end to it simply by having kind of reasonable liberals or reasonable socialists denounce it because it's just a kind of awful phenomenon of modern life and if you want to have a debate about whether social media is terrible for democracy i will be on the yay side um but Right now, where well, I really disagree, well, a couple of, there's a couple places I really disagree. Pick but one and then I'm going to go to Michael. But uh, the idea that the radical left poses a greater threat than the radical right when you see fa like actual fascism ascendant all over the world, 
strikes me as something that you can literally only believe if you spend your life on college campuses. Mm -hmm. Well, what I derive from that series of rebuttals, let's say, is twofold. The first is that saying that the radical left goes too far when they engage in violence is not a sufficient response by any stretch of the imagination because there are sets of ideas in radical leftist thinking that led to the catastrophes of the 20th century and that was at the level of idea, not at the level of violent action. It's a very straightforward thing to say you're against violence. It's like being against poverty. It's like, you know, gen generically speaking, decent people are against uh, poverty and violence. It doesn't address the issue in the least. You know, you want me to define or one of us to talk about when the left goes too far and if I'm, you know, I certainly don't want to be a woman putting words in your mouth, but if, mm. um, if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that you want me to kind of renounce Marxist categories or to... It's up to you. Well, I just want you to do it. I want you to define when the left goes too far. You can do it any way you want. I, like I said, I, I think that the left goes too far in t when it is violent or censorious, when it tries to shut people down or no platform them, or when it acts violently. I, I, I'm not sure what you expect Something beyond deeper. that. Something deeper, how? Yeah. Well, I'd like you to contend with the set of left-wing ideas that produced all the left-wing pathologies of the 20th century and to define how you think standard left-wing thinking, which has a valu valuable Again, place, so goes too far, since it obviously has does. Has the right gone too far? Has the right gone too far? Of course the right how? has gone Tell too far. Tell us how. Well, how about Auschwitz? I mean... Yeah. Well, I was else? talking about 20th That's, century that right? politics. What, what else? What, what, more recently, what has gone wrong with the right? I'm, Look, I don't like identity politics players at all. I don't care whether they're on the left or the right. I've been lecturing about right-wing extremism for 30 years. Mm -hmm. I'm no fan of the right, despite the fact that the left would like to paint me that way because it's more convenient for them. How has the right them. gone too far recently? Well, where? It's threatening to go too far in identitarian Europe, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. It's gone too far in Charlottesville. It went too far in Norway. Like, how long a list do you want? And why am I required to produce that? To show you that I don't like the identitarian right? I just thought I'd ask you. I was actually asking you a question. So your assumption, your assumption is somehow that I must be on the side of the right. It's like, look, the right hasn't that. occupied the humanities and the social sciences. It's as simple as that for me. If they say had, that, I'd be objecting to them. Say that again, I didn't, I didn't hear that. The, the right has not occupied the social sciences and the humanities. And the left clearly has. The statistical evidence for that is overwhelming. Sir, what about IQ testing in terms of genetic inheritance? <sighs> well, when you're dealing with a complete racist like Michael Dyson, all you can do is sigh. <laughs> There's nothing else you can say. There are... Just no rational arguments to offer a racist any more than you might have argued the Nazis out of their own leftist racist ideology. Quote, when you hear things like that, you make a commitment one way or the other, end quote, to borrow a phrase from our show opener today. You know, it's like they're all screaming, please see me as an individual because I'm a member of the left. It's, it's basically an outrageous and contradictory demand from those on the left where identity is entirely a group identity, and they want it that way, but they want to be treated as individuals at the same time. And when Dyson brought up the issue of country, he says, no collective identity? What do you call a nation? Well, I call a nation a jurisdiction under a single government, 
And it doesn't define whether that government is left or right. It could be either or some combination of the two, in which case it's going leftward. But before we continue, don't forget, you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And it's thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. Jordan Peterson argued that groupthink is one of the primal sins of identity politics on the left and the right. Well insofar as he believes that the right includes something like Nazis, he would be correct, but he's wrong, because groupthink and identity politics is a phenomenon of the left only, and the Nazis belong on the left. I'm no fan of the identitarian right, says Peterson, where group identity comes first and tribalism follows. Well, as with all adjectives, the word identitarian in front of the word right means not. The identitarian right is not the right, just as the alt-right was not the right. Both are left. But where Peterson has it exactly right is when he says, and I quote, Group rights are extraordinarily problematic. There is no such thing as group responsibility. Therefore, of course, (laughs) there's no such thing as a group right. Responsibility is an individualistic concept, absolutely, and it belongs on the right with individualism. Group rights are a concept of the left. Individual freedom and responsibility are concepts on the right, and that's the only place they exist. Otherwise, where are they on this scale, this this stupid scale that we have that has been handed down to us to confuse us? Says Peterson, the debate about political correctness is all about the left going too far, which it has done in too many ways. Let's quit this nonsense so the reasonable left can make its ascendance again and quit all this nonsense. Well, I have yet to hear anything that would resemble something called the reasonable left. I mean, reality and reason are a property of the right. Unreality and unreason are what ground the left, right to the core. There's no in-between here. Of course the right has gone too far, says Peterson. Auschwitz, for example. And again, he's referring to a right that is on the left, the Nazis. My Universal World Reference Encyclopedia points out about the Nazis. Founded in 1918, the National Socialist German Workers' Party was by 1932 the largest single party in Germany. Socialism is on the left. As admitted during the Nuremberg war crimes trials, German preparation for war began in 1920. The Nazi movement was financed by businessmen, landowners, and industrialists. And as elections showed, considerably more than the majority of Germans favored ultra-nationalistic politics and programs. When Nazism was defeated in the field, Germany surrendered unconditionally on May 7, 1945. The long-term effects of Nazism on the German people were the complete annihilation of whatever liberalism had survived previous regimes of authoritarian persecution and the intensification of militaristic, nationalistic, and autocratic attitudes in German politics, end quote. Now, as we pointed out before, The doctrines of socialism and fascism differ in one regard only, how the state treats the concept of private property. 
On the one side, you've got socialism and communism. They're totalitarian systems based on ownership and control of the means of production, quote-unquote, whereas fascism dispenses with state ownership and opts strictly for state control of private property. In both cases, the state controls the means of production. Individuals do not. And all of this is a doctrine of the left. Peterson argues that, quote, your assumption is that somehow I must be on the right, but the right hasn't occupied the humanities and social sciences, he says. But insofar as free speech is concerned, it is a quality of the right and the right only. So why don't you take that label proudly? You can see where this is all leading. So I can certainly understand why Danielle and Robert saw the monk debate as a non-debate. In this vacuum of improper labels and contradictory identification of ideas, no resolution is possible. Let us now turn our attention to yet another discussion that illustrates this unresolvable dilemma of left and right for those who insist on using the traditional BS scale of left and right with fascism being on the right. And I'm referring to the discussion that ensued at the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship and that was released on Just Right's own website over this past week and has already been viewed by thousands. I'm referring, of course, to that great presentation, and it's a lot of fun to watch, uh, made by David Haskell and Lindsay Shepard on May 5th, both of Laurier University, and we all know what's been going on at Laurier. And again, this conversation has been edited to those parts of the presentation where the left-right dichotomy could simply no longer be avoided, despite everyone's efforts to do so. Okay, so you, you have had some really tense times in your program. Uh, let's finish off talking about maybe positive outcomes. So has something, has something positive come from this? Has there been a ray of sunshine in all of this rainy gloom? Um, I think maybe a lot of people woke up, like especially on the Laurier campus, because this is something that, you know, everyone was talking about, really. And it almost kind of forced them, you know, the students, to engage with the issue. I don't want to say take a side, but like, you know, hear what each, what everyone has to say. Um, and so when you're that close to what's happening in, you know, a national news story, international news in a lot of cases, um, you know, it, they kind of woke up to something that, Otherwise, they might have not realized as a problem. Because if your opinions fall within the orthodoxy, you might never confront, you might never think there's a problem with freedom of expression because um, you never run counter to it. Right. You did, and you ended up uh, starting a club on campus. Yes, the Laurier Society for Open Inquiry, which is and that's the group gone that's off bringing no problem. Francis Wittesen. Right, yeah. that's, that's been just a cakewalk. Oh. oh yeah, it's no problem. It's not like we had to raise like on GoFundMe like almost $6,000 to bring in a university professor to our campus. Yeah, Francis yeah. Wittesen, who's here today, yeah. yeah, she's quite controversial. She's scary. Oh she's yeah, scary. terrifying. <laughs> you know, why a student group has to pay to bring a professor to another campus is beyond me. And there's an intersection here with something else that's happened recently. If I had to answer the question, what, what was something positive that came out of the Lindsay Shepard scandal, I would have said, well, we did have a free expression task force that, that then looked at the issue of free expression on our campus. And I'm one of the members, or I was, up until a couple days ago. Uh, and it, it was uh, an interesting experience because I was the only one going into the task force 
who was unequivocal in my support for maximum free expression. And I don't know the position of all my colleagues. I know the majority were probably not, I don't want to read their minds. So they weren't, they weren't saying they were free expression supporters. And certainly other things they'd said outside of the committee suggested they weren't. But nonetheless, we did come up with a document that did support freedom of expression on our campus. I was actually quite proud of it. And I think that everyone on that task force had come to some compromises. And we, we had a document that we were happy with. And it was a draft document. It wasn't complete. It was still going to be opened up to the public so that they could give their input. It wasn't a done deal. It still isn't a done deal. But it was still moving in the right direction, direction I felt. But then what has just happened this week is the administration at my campus, outside of the task force, completely unknown to the task force, has now said that it's going to charge security fees for groups or professors or associations who want to bring a speaker onto our campus. Now that might sound innocuous enough, except that this really is a tax on those students or faculty or associations who are right-leaning or libertarian or conservative. Because the only people who protest at my campus and on the majority of campus are on the left, and they protest people who are right-leaning. So this is actually a fee if you want to be someone who's libertarian, conservative, or right-leaning. And so I, I looked at this and I said, we've just crafted a free expression statement that says we will support the university institutionally will support marginalized voices. Well, I can show you excellent research that shows the most marginalized voices on university campuses are those who are libertarian, conservative, or right-leaning. They are the most marginalized voices when it comes to free expression. How much money does my university spend to help those marginalized voices? Zero. They do spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to give a platform to left-leaning voices through our diversity and equity office. So they're already doing that, and I'm okay with that. But there is no equity. They're asking people of a right-leaning persuasion, libertarians, conservatives, you need to pony up. So what they've in fact done is they've created a tax on free expression. It's not free expression if you're coming from a conservative position. So I asked my colleagues on the task force, I said, will you stand with me just to say we will not work toward a final draft? We won't work toward a final draft until the university rescinds this policy, at least so that we could discuss it. But unfortunately, I couldn't get the support of my task force colleagues on this. So I had no choice. Because it's not a free expression document anymore, this task force document, because it doesn't do what it says it will do. Because it doesn't allow marginalized voices to have a say. So I, I, at this point, I've stepped down. And I'm hoping that my university will say, yeah, we will rescind that policy. So if you are a student here today, uh, take heart. As human beings, we follow, I think it's easier for us to look at someone who's doing it already. I know that I'm that way. We, we're hearing from Gad Sad today. And back when I first started being aware of free expression, I wondered, is anybody else concerned about this? And I was really grateful to see that Gad was very vocal on his YouTube channel. And I sent him an email. I said, I'm grateful for what you're doing. I'm grateful there's a model to follow. I'm looking forward to hearing from him today. 
Uh, if you are a professor here today, or in some way you're still on a university campus, we need to learn to be more disagreeable. We need to find opportunities to be disagreeable. We need to create those opportunities. We need to find YouTube videos. We don't need to always bring in speakers. If you don't have a budget to bring in speakers, find a YouTube video that you know has academic merit, but also is going to drive the left crazy or drive the authoritarians crazy. Because I, 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 I'm sorry, these dichotomies of left, right, it, it's not always useful. I realize that. Uh, and I, I nodded to Francis on this because Francis is, uh, you know, uh, she's a lefty in the best way. <laughs> but, but it is, there's an authoritarian culture on campus that, that is against free expression. So I would encourage you, look for those opportunities where you can have a showing of some kind of video. Make a little bit of a stink. Stir the pot. Because it's only by pushing back that we're finally going to get somewhere into the middle again. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to say, first of all, Lindsay, um, you, things have changed. Your, what happened to you has changed what has happened on campuses. And I just gave a speech about Lindsay's case on Monday to about 40 professors who were in complete agreement with the terrible situation that uh, existed. But at the same time, we have to be very careful here that we can move things forward as a freedom of expression coalition, university-wide, Canada-wide, and there's a real danger if you see it as a right-wing, left-wing dichotomy. Um, I have talked to people from Wilfrid Laurier who said they wanted to speak up in favor of Lindsay, but they didn't because they feared being labeled a right-winger. That's the problem. So if you're going to say, um, we want to crush the left and the social justice warriors and all this kind of terminology, you're not going to get the, that middle, that large middle that really wants to support freedom of expression, but they're afraid to do so because they're going to be seen as someone who's on the right. I'm a socialist. I'm not a right winger. Christy Blatchford's piece in the National Post made it sound as if I were a right wing speaker. This is a huge problem. So if you're going to start talking, and, and the second thing is, these people are not on the left. The people who are claiming to be on the left, who are authoritarians, to politically correct totalitarians, they are not left-wingers. They are using this idea of the left to get other people to sympathize with them and to go with them, but they are actually reactionaries. They, they want privilege. They are privilege-seeking groups that d care nothing about equality. They are trying to increase their own power in the university. And that really has to be made clear, because if we keep on saying, oh, these leftists and these far leftists, you're never going to get anyone who sees themselves as being a left-wing person to be a supporter of freedom of expression. Just to comment with that. The, well, I, I think that what you're saying has a lot of merit, Francis. I think that also the reality on the ground is anybody who does speak up for free expression, regardless of their political stand, they're going to be called right wing now. 
right? I, I mean, I mean, it, it's a problem, but it, it, it is not a, it's not the people who are on the right who are doing it. Well, I think the left, the people who call themselves leftists, are actually farther to the right than the classical liber liberals and the libertarians. You may be right. I, I'm just saying that if, it, if it's a matter of labels, if it's a matter of labels, it's not the people. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, David. We'll go to lunch. Now, of course, that was Frances Whittleson who has identified herself as someone on the left, and she argues that there's a real danger in those who see it as a right-wing, left-wing dichotomy. People from Wilfrid Laurier didn't speak up for Lindsay in fear of being labeled a right-winger. And I have to confess, she's got a point there. It's especially true if you believe that the right-wing is fascism. Well, then it's understandable, isn't it? And it was purposely set up that way by the left, as we learned from Western University political science professor Salim Mansour on a past broadcast. But of course, that leaves no room for freedom of speech on any scale that offers only two totalitarian alternatives on the left, and you won't find that in the center. But to the extent that anyone does actually support freedom of speech and means it, they are right. And it's time to accept and embrace that reality. It's something to be proud of, not to be ashamed of and to avoid, as everyone is doing, even when they are speaking from the right. Says Whittleson, the large middle wants to support freedom of expression. I'm a socialist, not a right-winger. Christy Blatchford's article made it seem that I'm a right-winger. Well, that's because you support freedom of speech, Francis, and that's a concept on the right, the true right. The so-called large middle between two ideologies of censorship is not the place that you'll ever find freedom of any kind, let alone free speech. Using the correct scale as we use it, on the one side you have censorship, on the other you have freedom of speech. Therefore, what can the middle possibly represent? Nothing but censorship for some and free speech for others, which is exactly what we're seeing now. The sum being those being seen on the right, who get the censorship, and the others being those on the left who get the freedom of speech. And even there, the choice is binary within each category, isn't it? You can't escape it. There's no middle of the road. David Haskell's experience with quote-unquote compromise, as he put it, illustrates this point in action. The binary choice made by Wilfrid Laurier University was the one on the left. So, so much for compromising the two entirely incompatible options. The politically correct totalitarians are not really on the left. They are reactionaries. They want privilege, says Whittleson. And of course, she is clearly operating on that false scale of left and right and is defining not ide ideas or ideology, which are binary, and that's what left and right refer to, but is talking about the people who attempt to mix the two incompatible alternatives, which, as we've already pointed out, go from left to right when you're on the wrong scale, uh, on the wrong scale of left to right, which is all on the left, and you've got radical, liberal, centrist, conservative, and reactionary, and that's the traditional scale, and that's why she sees reactionaries on the right. So I understand exactly where she got that notion. Suggested David Haskell, my university spends zero for the right 
but hundreds of thousands of dollars for the left platform through diversity and equity office. And I'm okay with that, but there's no equity, end quote. Well, I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with the fact that the university spends any money to provide platforms for the left or right. To accept that it's okay to do this is to voluntarily accept another compromise that will always drift towards the left because the good, the right, has nothing to gain from the evil, the left. The left has everything to gain in any compromise between its evil philosophies and what is right. This is an eternal principle. Ayn Rand used to talk about it all the time. Be disagreeable, advises David. Find a YouTube video that has academic merit and will drive the left crazy. Or drive the authoritarians crazy. These dichotomies of left and right are not always useful. Francis is a lefty in the best way. It's an authoritarian culture on campus. Well, sad to say, there are no lefties in the best way. All that means is that the horror point of their philosophy has not yet been reached. And when that happens, we will all be faced with the ultimate binary choice that we heard in our opener today. When you see things like that, you make a commitment one way or the other, left or right. So as you can see, our show today has just been a demonstration of the principles that we have been discussing for years now on Just Right. All traditional discussions of left and right exist in a total vacuum, and that's why they make no sense to anybody and why everybody says they're useless and it's not helpful and la la la, and on they go, because it is useless. It's not real. It doesn't, it doesn't apply to reality or reason. And the vacuum is much further than just the labels. After all, no one mentions the nature of government, that government is an institution of force, that can be used to either defend life, liberty, and property or to violate life, liberty, and property. No one mentions that when the left says, you know, violence is going over the limit, that violence is to destroy life, liberty, and property. But when used by the right, as we define it here on the show, it is used to defend and protect life, liberty, and property. We're all part of a group in various ways, said Peterson quite correctly. But he left out the major distinction between differing group dynamics. The question, though, is not about the collective nature of the group. It's about whether the group association is voluntary or forced. And voluntary is a property of the right. When you join a group voluntarily, yes, you're part of a group, but you did so voluntarily, nobody forced you. So you see all the, all the problems that this whole dichotomy of left and right presents for the people who are trying to debate it in the vacuum that simply does not work. And as always on this show, we are firmly grounded on the right and not floating towards the left with vague and undefinable notions of the middle of the road between two totalitarian options. Because freedom and capitalism are to be found only there. We will always consider ourselves just right. And with that in mind, be sure to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. <laughs>
I got a friend who couldn't wait to get out of the army because he had to share everything and live 40 in a room. Now he's joined a hippie commune and he loves it. They live 40 in a room and he shares everything. 